Hello everyone and welcome to episode 54 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And we are back uh, for our bi-weekly episode, although the eagle-eyed amongst you may have spotted that this week you could have had access to an additional special anniversary episode uh, over on Patreon. And I was the one who was doing the research and reading the case. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, quick plug before we start this week's case, head over to Patreon and have a listen. It was a really, really interesting episode. So please, please, please do head over there and take a listen. Um, Sally did a very good job. So let's get into today's case. Today's case is set here in England, in London, and we start in the year 1983. On the 5th of February 1983, a woman named Pauline McCluskey gave birth to a baby girl who she decided to call Gemma. Pauline and her husband, Anthony, already had two sons, Tony and Danny, and the birth of their daughter was a wonderful moment for the whole family. Growing up, Gemma decided that she wanted to be an actress, and so she put all of her efforts into making that dream come true. In 1997, when she was around 14 years old, Gemma's acting career began to take off. She had a few small roles on various programmes, but then she landed a role on a British TV children's comedy show on CBBC called No Sweat. She continued acting on CBBC, but then, when she was just 17, she made the decision to bite the bullet and audition for one of Britain's most well-known and longest-running soaps, EastEnders. In October 2000, Gemma McCluskey landed the role of Kerry Skinner in EastEnders and her career absolutely skyrocketed. Her role in EastEnders made her a celebrity of sorts, and soon when she was out in Hackney where she lived, she was recognised by members of the public. She made friends with some of the other actors on the set and spent days out with them, and this again drew more attention to her. Her career was really pushing forward, she was very happy, and it seemed as if all her hard work had finally paid off. Around 2010, Gemma was living with her mother Pauline and her eldest brother Tony. Anthony and Pauline had divorced whilst Gemma was growing up, but the family were on really good terms and Gemma still spent an enormous amount of time with her dad, despite no longer living with him. Sadly, Pauline's health wasn't very good and she spent a lot of time in and out of hospital. When Pauline was home, Gemma cared for her and when she was in hospital, Gemma made sure to look after the house and cook and clean for her brother. This caring role put a huge strain on Gemma, especially when her brother Tony started taking harder drugs. Tony had always smoked marijuana, but more recently he had started smoking a heavier strain of marijuana. This strain reportedly contained 16% of THC, whereas normal weed contains about 3% of THC. THC is of course the part of marijuana that makes you high, and this higher percentage meant that Tony spent a lot of his time completely out of it. His father said that Tony had really let himself go, he'd stopped washing, he'd stopped caring about anything, and this understandably put a huge strain on Gemma. When Pauline was in hospital and Gemma had to take care of everything at the house, looking after Tony was really difficult. Still, true to her caring nature, Gemma persevered and tried to make the best of the situation they were in. She spent a lot of time out of the house with her friends, especially her best friend Carly, who had young children of her own. On Thursday the 1st of March 2012, Gemma woke up to the sound of running water. 
she was confused and got out of bed to investigate. When she opened her bedroom door, she saw water covering the hallway. She ran into the bathroom and turned off the taps that had been left on. Furious, she walked into Tony's room and woke him up. Tony said that he had started running a bath but had accidentally fallen asleep and had left the taps on. Gemma was, understandably, incredibly annoyed at her brother, but she didn't have time to stand around and argue with him. She had to get ready to go to the Royal London Hospital. It's hard to pinpoint what was going on at the hospital on that morning, but most reports seem to state that a new area of the hospital, possibly something like a new ward, was opening, and because of that, the hospital were putting on an opening ceremony. One of Gemma's friend's daughters was performing in the ceremony, and Gemma had told her friend that she would go along and film it. Gemma quickly got ready and, sidestepping the water that covered the floor, she left the house. She arrived at the Royal London Hospital and watched her friend's daughter perform in the ceremony, then she left and went to her friend's house straight after. She sat with her friend for a bit and had a cup of tea, but just before 1.30 that afternoon, she left to go home. Less than an hour later, at eight minutes past two, someone switched off Gemma's phone. After this, she was completely uncontactable. By the evening on that day, March 1st, 2012, Carly, Gemma's best friend, had rung around all their other friends to see if anyone had heard from Gemma. Everyone said no, they hadn't spoken to her, and she hadn't returned any of their calls. By the next day, Friday the 2nd of March, Gemma's friends became even more concerned. Carly rang Tony and asked him if he'd seen his sister. Tony said that he hadn't, she hadn't come home that night. He said that he had texted her asking her what she was going to have for dinner, but that she hadn't replied. He said that he thought that she might be mad at him because they'd had that argument the morning before about him leaving the water on. Carly became even more panicked. She knew that Gemma wouldn't have gone anywhere without telling anyone. Tony calmed her down, though. He told her that of course Gemma would show up. Tony's reassurance helped Carly to stay level-headed, and she decided to take action in case someone had seen Gemma. Carly created some missing person flyers and went out around Hackney distributing them. She also spoke to Danny, Gemma's other brother, who she didn't live with, and Danny also jumped into action. He helped Carly distribute the flyers, whilst Tony said that he would stay at home in case Gemma returned. Anthony, Gemma's father, had also received a call from Gemma's work, saying that Gemma had not turned up. Anthony knew that Gemma would never normally miss work without telling someone, and he began to feel like something was very, very wrong. By Saturday the 3rd of March, there was still no sign of Gemma, and nobody had been able to reach her. Carly, Tony and Danny made the decision to go to the police station and report Gemma McCluskey missing. The police were most interested in speaking to Tony as they believed that he was the last person to see Gemma. After all, she had left her friend's house on the 1st of March to go home to her brother. During his conversation with the police, Tony gave three different accounts of when he had last seen Gemma and what Gemma had been doing. Danny got increasingly frustrated with his brother and snapped at him for being too high to remember. He thought that Tony was changing his story so much and getting confused because he'd been smoking weed that day, as he did every day. The police took down their statements and told them to garner as much attention as they could. 
One of Gemma's friends phoned the local newspaper and asked them to put a story out about Gemma's disappearance. The reporter spoke to Gemma's family and friends and published an article headlined Brothers and Friends Searching for Missing EastEnders Actress. That's what I was going to say. Was there not quite a lot of publicity anyway, given that she was in like quite a popular soap? Yeah, so I think by this time, it's really hard to tell from the reports, but I think at this time she wasn't actively a, a, mem- a character in EastEnders. So I think she was by this point, you know, one of those characters who like comes back in, in and out every now and again. But um, there wasn't really a lot of attention on it other than Carly um, and Danny putting out these flyers and also putting up social media posts and stuff. But really, other than that, it wasn't really in the media until this local newspaper printed this story. Um, And then it sort of began to garner a bit of attention from that. But yeah, initially, in the first kind of three, four days, uh, there wasn't really attention surrounding the case. Unfortunately, this headline didn't spark any new leads in the case. And nobody came forward to say that they had seen Gemma. It was as if she had seemingly disappeared into thin air. Then the police got what they thought was a break in the case. Tony got a call from an unknown number and a man told him that he had Gemma and if the family wanted to see Gemma alive again, they needed to take £2 million to Evesley International Station. Tony hung up the call. Almost instantly, the man called back and requested more money in what he called Iraqi dollars. Again, Tony hung up. Then the man phoned back a third time just minutes later and repeated that he wanted £2 million and that the money had to be taken to Ebbsfleet International Station. Tony asked to speak to his sister, but the man said no, she was in another room. He said she was naked and that she had been raped. Tony had put the call on loudspeaker and Gemma's friends and family heard the horrible news that Gemma was being held captive somewhere and that she'd been sexually assaulted. Danny McCluskey also received the same phone calls from the same person. Again, the man requested a large sum of money if he wanted to see his sister alive again. Although the call was coming from a withheld number, the police were able to trace it, and they tracked it down to a 19-year-old boy named Sam Dunn who lived in Kent. The police raided the home where Sam lived, and very quickly it was established that the calls had been a hoax. Sam Dunn did not have Gemma or know where Gemma was and he had just been trying to exploit the family for money. He had found the numbers for both Tony and Danny on the missing person flyers and had seen his opportunity to make some money off of the disappearance of the EastEnders star. Sam Dunn was subsequently jailed for six months. This slight glimmer of hope that Gemma was alive had been taken away from the McCluskey family and Anthony was desperate to find his daughter. Anthony spoke to his son Tony to try and establish when Gemma had last been seen. Tony said that he didn't think that Gemma had come home that night. He said that he was worried that she was mad at him for flooding the home and maybe she'd run away. On March 5th, 2012, four days after Gemma had last been seen, a search for Gemma began. On that night, police, volunteers and almost all of Gemma's family searched around Shoreditch and Bethnal Green. Tony told his family that he wasn't going to attend the search because he wanted to be home in case Gemma turned up there. The Sun newspaper got themselves involved and they went down to meet the search party and to take photos. When Tony heard that the newspaper was going to be there, he decided to show his face and turned up to assist the search party and show his support. 
Gemma's last movements were still very unclear. It was thought that she had made it home the afternoon of March 1st, despite Tony's ever-changing account of that day, but nobody knew what had happened after that and whether she had left the house to go and see someone else. The search in Bethnal Green and Shoreditch produced no viable leads and the case was, once again, halted. On Tuesday the 6th of March 2012, at 2.30 in the afternoon, a lady was navigating her barge through Regent's Canal. As she tried to navigate her way through the canal, the end of her barge boat hit a suitcase that was floating in the water. As her boat made contact with the suitcase, the lid of the suitcase pinged open and inside was a human torso. Oh, God. The news was quickly leaked that a torso had been found in the canal and upon hearing this news, Carly broke down. She phoned Tony in floods of tears and told him that a body had been found in the canal and she said that she was so scared that it might be Gemma. Tony once again calmed Carly down and he said that there was no way that it would be her. A few hours later, Anthony McCluskey received a knock at his front door. He said that when he opened the front door, he knew that something was very wrong because the police officer had brought a family liaison officer with him. The police explained that they had found a body in Regent's Canal and although they could not yet be certain, they did believe that it was Gemma. They said that they had to run DNA tests and compare the body to the DNA samples they had taken from Gemma's toothbrush but the torso they had found had a tattoo that was identical to a tattoo that Gemma had. Nobody could believe that it might be Gemma. It didn't seem possible that someone would do that to Gemma, not only to kill her, but to then dismember her body. The McCluskey family sat and waited to hear from the police, and they were devastated when it was confirmed that the torso in Regent's Canal was Gemma. All of Gemma's friends and family were brought in for questioning and everyone did everything they could to assist the police with their investigation. Everyone, that is, except for Tony. Tony immediately started answering no comment to all the police questions. The police officer asked Tony why he wasn't trying to help find his sister's murderer, to which Tony replied, no comment. Tony's behaviour began to look even more suspicious when one of the investigators got in touch with a clinical psychiatrist. This psychiatrist stated, quote, Homicides ending with corpse dismemberment are nearly always performed at the site of the homicide, and usually this site is inhabited by the perpetrator, the victim, or both. He then said, Homicides that are followed by dismemberment are commonly committed by someone close to or someone acquainted with the victim. It's important to note that Tony was exercising his right to silence by answering no comment to the police questions. Not answering their questions was his legal right, but it did, of course, make him look very suspicious. This suspicious behaviour, mixed with the comments from the clinical psychiatrist, and mixed with the fact that Tony was the last person to have seen Gemma alive, made Tony McCluskey suspect number one in the murder of his sister, Gemma. He was arrested and his phone was seized, and the police began to search the house that Gemma and Tony had lived in together. On Tony's phone, the police found that Tony had made several calls to Gemma on the 1st of March, the day that she disappeared. This was consistent with statements from the friend that Gemma had been with that day, and she had said that Gemma had received a lot of calls from her brother, and that he had been shouting down the phone to her, and that this is why she decided to leave and go home. 
The police also found a text message that Tony had sent to Gemma on Friday the 2nd of March, the day after she had disappeared. This text message read, Gem, ring me when you get this message. What are you having for dinner? Are you working tonight? Kiss, kiss. They also then found a text message that Tony had sent to his girlfriend on the 2nd of March, apologising for being MIA the night before and not responding to her texts. The police also looked at CCTV and noted that Gemma's car arrived on her street at 1.50pm on the 1st of March and a report from Gemma's phone company said that her phone had been manually switched off at 2.08pm. The police believed that Gemma had died somewhere between 1.50 and 2.08 that afternoon. The evidence was there. It was clear that Gemma had gone home and that Tony was the last person to have been with her. This, coupled with the fact that Tony had sent a text to his girlfriend apologising for not being around that night, led the police to believe that Tony had killed his sister and had then dismembered her body in their home and he'd then disposed of her body in the canal. The CPS felt that there was enough evidence to charge Tony and on the 10th of March 2012, Tony McCluskey was charged with the murder of Gemma McCluskey. The police worked hard to find some concrete evidence they had found records that showed that Pauline had called the police twice about Tony in the past, on occasions when he had lost his temper and had gone to hit his sister. Of course, though, this wasn't enough. There are some less reputable sources out there that claim that Gemma's blood and body matter were found in the house. Whilst this is technically correct, it's not really a fair representation of the facts, because the police really had nothing – when forensic experts searched the house, they found one drop of Gemma's blood on the handle of a kitchen knife. The blood was literally a drop, and given the fact that Gemma lived in the house, it was very probable that Gemma may have cut herself with the knife at some point. The luminal tests in the home showed no blood anywhere else, there was no sign of a clean-up, there was no blood in the bath or in the plugs or in the sink. The police couldn't work out if the murder had actually occurred in that home or not, if Gemma had been murdered by Tony in their home, then Tony had done an insanely good clean-up job. Then, the investigators found a tiny, minuscule particle on the cabinet in the bathroom. This very small particle was determined to be a particle of Gemma's body matter, and this was the proof they needed that Gemma had been killed in that home. Whilst all of this was going on, the local waterways authority was searching the canal for the rest of Gemma's body. A canal operative called Mark Loveday made it his own personal mission to help find all of Gemma so that Anthony could lay all of his daughter to rest. Mark found several wrapped packets in the canal and these contained some of Gemma's limbs. Mark said that all of the packets were really tightly wrapped and that they really looked as if they could have been anything. However, he said... The final packet had come open and Gemma's hand was poking out of the top of it and he said it was really in that moment that the full gravity of the investigation hit him. Mark and his team had managed to find all of Gemma's body, apart from her head. The coroner stated that there was no visible signs of injury on Gemma's torso or limbs and therefore the police still didn't know how Gemma had died. Tragically, it took almost six months before Gemma's head was found. On the 9th of September 2012, volunteers cleaning out the canal pulled a large wrapped packet out of the water. One of the volunteers left it on the bridge to drain, and then he opened it, wondering why it was so heavy. Inside the packet was Gemma's severed head.
Although this was, of course, a horrific discovery, Antony was so grateful that he had all of Gemma and he could finally plan her funeral and lay her to rest. The M.E. noted that Gemma had a large head wound, which he surmised had probably been caused by a blunt object, like a glass ashtray or something like that. Gemma's cause of death was officially listed as a bleed on her brain caused by blunt force trauma. During the six-month period between charging Tony and searching the canal, the police had been hard at work trying to find more evidence against Tony. What they discovered was horrific. CCTV footage from the day Gemma disappeared showed Tony casually walking into Tesco and coming out with heavy-duty bin liners and a pack of cigarettes. These bin liners matched the bin liners that Gemma's body had been wrapped in. The police also discovered that Tony had hired a minicab much later on that evening. The minicab company let the police see the CCTV footage from that night, and what it showed was chilling. In the footage, Tony can be seen dragging what is clearly a very heavy bag across the car park. He was clearly struggling with it, so the taxi driver got out of the vehicle to help Tony. They each grabbed one end of the bag and heaved it into the boot. The taxi driver, unknowingly, helped Tony put Gemma's dismembered body in the back of the taxi. That is actually awful. Jesus, well, I guess you didn't really know. Did he ever find out that... That was what he'd done that night. Like, I can't imagine having to live with that. Um, yeah, he did because they um, questioned him. So they went on to, after they saw the CCTV footage, they went, the police went on to question the driver. Um, and he said actually that he'd taken Tony that night, although he said that Tony had called himself Tom, uh, but that he'd taken Tony um, and dropped him off at Regent's Canal. Um, and then another student was sat on her balcony having a cigarette or something. And she also um, said that she'd seen Tony or someone who looked like Tony dragging the bag along the canal path. Um, and then obviously forensic experts were brought in and they tested the boot of the taxi um, and they found traces of Gemma's DNA in the carpet fibers. So, yes, the taxi driver did find out, which is yeah truly horrific. So until the discovery of this CCTV... Anthony had not believed that his son had killed his daughter. The police said that they felt that they had no choice but to show Anthony the footage so he could see the evidence for himself. The video of his son struggling to carry the bag that had his daughter's body in understandably crushed Anthony. Anthony went to see his son in jail and asked him why he'd done it. If something had happened, why hadn't he just called his dad? Tony denied killing Gemma and said that it hadn't been him. What? So is he acknowledging that he disposed of and hid the body, but saying he didn't do the murder, or is he just actually being a moron and saying he had nothing to do with any of it, despite the videos? Yeah, yeah, literally just saying that it wasn't him. Um, And, yeah, he said that he doesn't think it was him because he can't remember doing it. And so the video of the CCTV of him dragging um, the bag that really you know that really could have been anyone I mean you have the taxi driver saying yes it was the same guy who you know you're showing me a picture of Tony and yes it's the same guy but really from that CCTV it could it could be anyone what is quite clearly Tony though is the CCTV of him walking in and out of Tesco carrying the bin liners that then obviously um were confirmed to be the same ones that um Gemma's body was wrapped in like that is clear as day him on that CCTV uh so yeah to answer your question he's just 
being a moron and he's just saying, no, it wasn't me. And he's saying that to everyone. He's saying that to the police and to his dad. Yeah, and it might also be grainy footage, but like, I mean, it was picked up from the house they shared, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. And also, um, Anthony, when he saw it, he said, you know, and he was in pure denial, Anthony, and he admits that in interviews and stuff. He says, like, I just didn't, I th- I thought the police had got it wrong. I thought this was going to be a massive, you know, a miscarriage of justice. Like, I couldn't believe they were going after him. I thought my daughter's killer was still out there. And then he saw the CCTV footage of uh, the man who we obviously know is Tony dragging the bag. And he, he said, literally, his heart stopped. And he was like, I just know that's him. I know that's Tony. So, yeah. You might not be able to identify it completely, but Anthony, who was completely convinced that it wasn't going to be Tony, even that CCTV footage swayed him. So, on the 13th of January 2013, the trial began. There was a clear divide in the McCluskey family, with Pauline and her side of the family sat on one side, and Anthony sat alone on the other side. Anthony had stated quite publicly that he was going to stand by his son, The other members of his family were outraged by this and they couldn't understand how he could say that. But Anthony said that he couldn't lose two of his children. He had already lost Gemma and he said that he couldn't lose Tony as well. During the trial, Tony's entire defence was that he had amnesia and that he couldn't remember killing Gemma and that he didn't think that he had done it. During the trial, a forensic expert spent an excruciating amount of time explaining how each of Gemma's limbs had been cut off and how the first limb was done with a knife, but the rest was done with an axe. He said that it would have taken around three hours to completely dismember Gemma's body. During this part of the trial, Anthony had to leave the courtroom because he was so horrified. On the 30th of January 2013, Tony McCluskey was found guilty of murdering his sister Gemma and he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 20 years. At the time of his sentencing, he was 36 years old. For the next six months or so, Anthony continued to visit his son in prison and pleaded with him to just tell him what had happened. Tony had been found guilty in court, but he had still never confessed to what he'd done or what had happened that day. During the prison visit, Tony still continued to say that he couldn't remember what happened. He also wrote letters to his dad, and in those, he also said that he couldn't remember. He also never mentioned Gemma by name, and this, for Anthony, was the final straw. Anthony visited his son in prison for a final time and told him that he'd had enough. He told him he was leaving and he wasn't going to come back. Tony had never shown any remorse, He hadn't apologised, and he hadn't even admitted to what he had done. He'd also refused to even acknowledge that not only his sister was dead, but that he had killed her and then he had dismembered her body. Anthony disowned his son that day, and he has not spoken to him since. Tony had also written to Pauline from prison, but Pauline refused to respond to the letters. As far as she was concerned, Tony stopped being her son the day he killed Gemma. For a short while, Pauline moved back into the home that she had shared with her daughter. In December of the same year that Tony was sentenced, 2013, Pauline had an operation to remove a tumour in her brain. Tragically, Pauline contracted MRSA during the surgery and she died during her stay in hospital. Pauline was buried with some of Gemma's ashes so that they could be together forever. 
God, I can't believe I've never heard of that case. But so effectively, no one really still knows why he did it. I mean, let's be clear, he obviously did do it. Um, But he's still never, like, all these years later, admitted anything, still claims he can't remember. Yeah, he just he just won't admit to it. And I think he's basically falling back on the fact that, you know, he smoked a lot of marijuana all the time and he had amnesia and he couldn't remember any of it but it's it is it's just it's complete rubbish isn't it because it's not like he killed her in a fit of anger or something and then maybe possibly came to panicked called the police or whatever you know he very methodically went out you know he killed her he went out he went to tesco got some cigarettes got some bin liners came home dismembered her poor body which took you know according to the medical expert about three hours, he then got some food, waited until it got dark, went to a minicab company, told them a different name, put her body in there, took it to the canal. Do you know what I mean? All of this is just so methodical. It's so thought out. It wasn't like he just panicked. And I and I can't believe that, you know, he's even trying to use that as a defense. And his dad said in one of the interviews that I saw, his dad was literally just like, it was so embarrassing watching him on that stand. And obviously at that point, Anthony was really sticking by his son. But he just said it was just so, it was just so embarrassing watching him try to use that as a defense. Like he couldn't remember any of it. And then what he texts his girlfriend the next day saying, oh, like, sorry, I was MIA last, I was MIA last night. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous defense. And it's just so insulting to the entire family. But I, I think ultimately, I mean, not that they're, would ever be a good reason but I just don't think he had a reason for killing her I think that it probably was in a fit of rage and the other thing actually that I forgot to mention was that um one of the at the very beginning he told his dad um that uh, Gemma had come home from being at her friend's house and then had come up the stairs with a knife and was like threatening Tony and then he said he couldn't remember what happened after that but you know if he you know he's saying in the first instance oh yeah it was self-defense and then he's like oh, I can't really be bothered to commit to that story, so I'm just going to pretend I've got full-blown amnesia. It's just ridiculous. It's just so offensive to the family. Yeah, and I just find it odd that after you've been sentenced and, you know, nothing really changes whether you admit it or not, apart from, like, your family get a bit of peace and, and understanding. I just, I never understand why people commit crimes and then take their, like, innocence to their grave when the evidence is so overwhelming. Like you say... It's clearly not amnesia, and if it was, why would he not be full of remorse? Like, if you had genuinely forgotten everything, came to and realised that you'd killed your sibling, like, my God, you'd be a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would be completely. And that's, I think, something that Anthony really couldn't understand, was he was just like, if you'd done this, like, why wouldn't you just phone me you know if you didn't want to phone the police why didn't you phone me like I would have helped you as in obviously not helped him cover it up of course but as in like I I would have like helped you I would have spoken to the police and all the rest of it but no like he you know to even go through everything after the fact and pretend like he hadn't seen her and you know oh I don't know where she is and that kind of thing and what must he have been thinking when that awful awful like prankster rang up and was like trying to get money out of them like can you imagine receiving that phone call and being like well, what do you mean like he must have been thinking well, what do you mean you've got her because I, I know that I've killed her do you know what I mean yeah although I, I don't know can't imagine he was that like offended by someone trying to kind of capitalize off the situation when um he'd done something so awful and I suppose it's possible he was somehow like linked to that phone call 
Oh yeah, they yeah. I didn't see anything to link them together. But yeah, I didn't think that he would be offended. I thought I I think more like you would be like, what the hell is happening? When like he he probably was thinking either that he got lucky. I think in one interview someone said, oh, he must have felt like it was his lucky day then, or whatever. But I don't think that he would have. I think he would have been so confused. It was probably why he kept hanging up on the caller to be like, because he had obviously no idea. But yeah, I just think the whole the whole case is so sad and um. Really weirdly, not that heavily reported on. Like, I tried to find uh, quite a few... Well, I tried to find articles from, like, reputable sources. But I really, really struggled. And I don't know why that is. But it seems to really be heavily reported on, you know, like, The Mirror and The Sun and stuff like that. And I just think... I don't know. There's only, like, a handful of BBC reports, for example. Um, But uh, Anthony has done loads and loads of interviews and really, you know, kind of spoken out about it. And I think it was actually quite amazing. You know, he's so honest in saying, well, I really wanted to stand by my son. I didn't want to lose two children. But then actually to, to have the kind of strength to turn around and be like, actually, you know what? This isn't worth it anymore. You have no remorse whatsoever. You really don't care. And this is kind of insulting to Gemma and her memory. So I'm actually, I'm not going to speak to you anymore. Like this is done. And he, and he hasn't, you know, um, as far as I can tell, he really genuinely hasn't spoken to Tony since, which would have been a really difficult decision to make, I think, especially because he was so publicly um, like supporting his son. Yeah. And I think that's probably a little bit maybe where the like lack of publicity comes from. I mean, ultimately it's very rare to have, such a senseless graphic case where one family um are both the parents of like the victim and the perpetrator and i suppose for them like there's no need for media coverage do you know i mean they're being hurt by it and wouldn't really have anything to gain from it so i guess maybe they might have quite like intentionally wanted to just kind of grieve in in privacy like you say for both children like for for their daughter but also possibly even the harder one the son who did such a depraved thing yeah i agree completely agree so thank you everyone very much for joining us for this episode as always please do follow us on social media at infraction.thepod we have thousands of listeners i think about 500 instagram followers so i know many of you would have missed our announcement last week Last Wednesday officially marked a whole year of infraction and to mark such a monumentous occasion, Sally and I swapped roles for a special bonus episode. So if you want to hear Sally talk about a horrific Russian serial killer, then you can find the episode now at patreon.com slash infraction the pod. Thank you as always for your support in our show and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.